Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brad. In this episode, we're discussing SST-35, Black Flag, Loose Nut, which is an awesome record, one of my favorites, and really looking forward to getting into this one. It's not one of my favorite Black Flag albums, but I have to admit, it's one of the most consistent, I would say. Like, there's I re- there's no filler on this album. There's not a bad song. No. And it sounds great, too. We'll, we'll get into all that. Um, but again, really looking forward to talking about this one. I had a quick spiel to get out of the way. Um, I thought I would mention, I, I know this episode will air sometime after this news has broken. But we were talking, Brant, about, I'm pretty sure it was during the New Day Rising episode, we were talking about producer in Minneapolis who had done a lot of records that we liked. Uh, was it Steve Felstad? Right, yep. Yeah, and you had mentioned a 7 Seconds EP called Praise that he had done. Yeah. And and since that episode, and again, probably a while since we'll air this episode, it was announced that 7 Seconds finally broke broke up for good like 30, 35 years later. Yeah, I saw and that. I thought I would mention that because, I mean, it's just kind of a personal anecdote. They were a pretty important band to me as a kid, getting into punk rock like 13, 14, 15, especially, you know, Walk Together, Rock Together, uh, the old school record, The Crew, and New Wind. Those ones uh, I played to death, and they had a lot of positivity in them which I really needed, I guess, (laughs) when I was a teenager. And I, uh, when I was reading up kind of on the internet about how they broke up, I took the time to re-listen to uh, the closest one I had at hand was Walk Together, Rock Together. And I don't know, it's still a classic record. And when you, when we were talking about um, that EP Praise, during that New Day Rising podcast, you had mentioned Seven Seconds was kind of like in their quote-unquote U2 phase. Yeah, and that's what people say. That's what people say. And when I was reading up on them over the past week, they say that about that phase a ton. Like, it's it's like the biggest catchphrase, you know, that's when Seven Seconds sounded like U2. But you know what that era sounds like to me? It sounds like, you know, Discord... I don't want to call it like proto emo type stuff, but this is, it, it sounds to me like, not like you too. It sounds like, like uh, a hardcore band kind of evolving into slower, more emo type stuff uh, or what we know as emo now. I don't know. I, I, I was just kind of, I was checking some of that out and I'm going to dive back into that. So that's, that's my takeaway from the uh, seven seconds breaking up announcement. Yeah, I think they're factoring the production values into that. The album that just came to mind when you were just talking was that um, Dag Nasty album, Field Day. Sounds a lot like, to me, sounds kind of like that era of Seven Seconds. I've never I'm been a huge Seven Seconds guy. Like, I have a ton of respect for them, and what I've heard I do like. I'm just not a hardcore guy in general. You know what I mean? Like, I've got my standards that I kind of grew up on, and that I go back to, but I was more of like a 70s punk guy. You know, even stuff like Dead Kennedys, I don't really 
maybe consider them a hardcore band even but uh for me like that praise era was kind of the stuff i just happened to get when i was a kid so i've always really liked it yeah uh i don't know i think it should get a bit more credit i guess than uh than people kind of dismissing it as you too and i get the production comment for sure yeah and you know i'm a big dag nasty fan and I like all Dagnasty and even the Field Day record. There are some albums from the 80s especially that have just some, you know, questionable production values, but, you know, a little too much compression, a little too much reverb, but yeah, still good still good music, still good songs. Well, That's we're, we're going to get into some of those albums pretty soon because SST did that too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, everybody uh, was doing that, it. That, yeah, Totally. But that's my spiel for this week. I got one. Lay it on me. News. It's a. It's breaking news. What's that? I got that Bruce Duff book. Tracked it down and bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you started reading it? Well, whenever anybody asks me what I'm reading, I always paraphrase a uh, a David Lee Roth quote. He says something t- along the lines of, "I read like most people watch TV." I'm currently reading about 20 different books and like five different magazines. So, no, I haven't started it. I'll give you a review probably six months from now when I finally finish it. (laughs) I do. I'm really interested, though, to hear what you think of it. And in particular, like, who are the other players in the band? Because he doesn't use their real names. He gives them, like, nicknames. Hmm. I think he calls the guitarist, like, Ratman or the Rat or something like that. And okay. you probably know who these guys actually are, and uh, I definitely did not. So I would like to hear about that. Well, if I if I don't know, I can probably figure it out by looking at the records. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, is it time to get loose? Yeah. History lesson part one. Loose nut. Like I said, it's it's one of my favorites. It's one of the first ones that I got with Slip It In and My War, like full albums. So I listened to it a ton when I was a kid. It has, like, I agree with you, it doesn't have any filler on it, but uh, maybe the song's sinking for me, but we'll get into that later. Black Flag, though, at this stage, I think it's fair to say, you know, they know each other really well as a band now with Kira and Bill, Henry and Greg, and... It's just a tight unit right now. Yeah. They came off the road like we, the last time we talked about Black Flag, they were basically right up until the end of 1984. I think they played a show on like Christmas Eve or something like that. Henry did a spoken word show on New Year's Eve, and then they shut it down for like three, almost four months in in, uh, 1985. Almost all of January through April, they're off the road. Henry's doing spoken word shows and Black Flag's doing a fair amount of instrumental sets just around the LA area and they're practicing lots. Henry's journals around this time are really good. He gives a little bit of insight into what's going on and that's where I got most of this stuff from. Um, He's spending a lot of time in the shed so there's a lot of the writing's pretty dark, kind of shed stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about going into the studio uh, around February 25th. I think he says, I'm going into the 
studio the next night to track vocals. So that would have been like the 26th, 27th of February. Basically, they had two 48-hour sessions uh, in the studio. And as far as I can tell, they tracked all of this album, all of In My Head, and all of the process of Weeding Out, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Here's what I got from basically Get In The Van journal entries. Uh, he mentions at one point going to K-Disc. Remember you were saying something about the the runoff groove having a circle with a K around it and the little K-Disc stamp? Oh, in a previous podcast, yep. yeah. I'm pretty sure Joe Carducci and Enter Naomi talks about, has some little anecdotes about K-Disc ma- uh, mastering. He talks about going there to listen to the October Faction mastering. Says it sounds really good, so that's right in line with that album, which we're doing next week, I believe. He's getting his iconic back uh, piece tattoo worked on a lot during this time. March 1st, he did four songs in the studio, and he says that's the most he's done in a single night ever since being in Black Flag, four in one night. He talks a lot about going to gigs, uh, the Meat Puppets, Saccharin Trust, uh, sorry, I was going to say SWA, but it's SWA, who uh, he mentions playing a lot, and they don't have an album out yet, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Talks about going to see Deep Purple. Uh, Tom Tricoli's dog is playing by this point, so we'll be talking about them fairly soon, little ways away yet. March 18th, he does vocals on the song Loose Nut and says he's glad he, he did okay because it's a really hard song for him to sing. Uh, April 2nd, he talks about going into the studio during the day and says he hasn't gone in during the day since the dam- damaged sessions in 81. April 28th is uh, a really long journal entry. Bill and Greg don't get along. Yesterday, Bill quit Black Flag. And <laughs> he's really bummed out about it. He was, he was pumped in a previous journal entry because uh, he talks about Chuck Dukowski showing him a tour itinerary and he's really excited to get back on the road and and then bill up and quits he basically says like he saw this coming and didn't think it was going to happen before the tour but they you know hadn't been getting along and you know the tours in jeopardy now it was supposed to start on may 8th and he's really bummed out because a lot of people were relying on black flag you know like the the support bands and dave rat who had apparently built a new sound system for the tour. He talks about, after that, going on a spoken word trip to San Francisco with Exene Cervenka. And Joe from Angst puts them up at Systematic Records, which I thought was cool, because that's where Joe Carducci worked before he came to work for SST. Hey, I got a question. Yeah. Quick question. Sorry, I can't help but uh, wonder, is it Angst or Angst? Yeah, I don't know. I've always said it Angst, but Linda Kite pronounced it Angst, so... Yeah, someone let us know. Yeah. He puts them up at Systematic, so I'm assuming that uh, Joe worked there. I'm talking about Joe from Angst or Angst. But Joe Carducci did work there before he came to SSD. They're a distributor, I believe. And he says, Angst is on SST now. And he's excited because he likes them. They're awesome. I I know it's going to be a long time before we get to those records, but I've told you about them before. I really like that band. Yeah. 
He gets back around May 6th from this trip out to San Francisco with Exine, and there's an entry on the 8th of May, which was when they were supposed to start their tour, and he says, Lots happened while I was gone. We have a new drummer, and that, of course, is Anthony Martinez. He calls him a cool guy and a good drummer. Found some other stuff where Kira's kind of... She is really bummed out that Bill quits the band or is asked to leave. It sounds like the feeling was was mutual uh, between them that Bill was going to leave. You know, Bill was her closest friend in the band. She really thinks about leaving herself at this time, but decides to stay on for the tour. But tells Greg that she's basically not happy with how he handled the firing and that there was no communication about it. And she thinks that kind of sealed her fate with Black Flag. Because uh, by the end of the year, she'll be out of the band as well. And she thinks it might have something to do with Bill wanting to do Descendants, at the, like, on the side. He go, he basically goes right into the Descendants, Bill does. Yeah. After this. So that's kind of what was happening in Black Flag world around this time. Pretty kind of chaotic time. I've heard before that Joe Carducci kind of thinks Greg had plans to kind of get everything out there that was written and wrap the whole thing up. Greg Ginn has, had apparently been talking around this time about wanting to take time off after this tour to try and, re, quote, rebuild SST. April 27th, 1985 is the exact state, date that Bill Stevenson left. Right after this, he's going to be involved in I Don't Want to Grow Up, which also came out in 1985 by The Descendants. And was engineered by Dave Tarling, who did this one as well. But as I mentioned, they're going to do three more Black Flag releases this year. The next one's going to be The Process of Weeding Out and In My Head, all of which was recorded before Bill left the band. Yeah, I think he was on five or six records. I think he's on the most releases of any Black Flag drummer. Yeah, oh, for Even, sure. Yeah. You know, Brent, you had posted kind of a link to Bill Stevenson on a podcast on the Vinyl Guide. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Did you listen to it? Oh yeah. Well, don't let me don't let me jump ahead. No, no. I was going to mention some stuff about that. Did you Did you get a chance to check it out? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to mention it because, and and you probably have a couple of things that you picked out of it, but um, I never listen to podcasts like I. I used to listen to the odd one here and then, but I'm just, I just like listening to music a bit more these days. I think I'll get back into it. But every now and then, there's uh, one that you or someone else recommends and I listen to and I really enjoy it. I really enjoyed that one with Bill. The thing that struck me about him is that he's a, like, the way he speaks is. I don't know. It's kind of a cross between surfer dude and like professor, right? Yeah. He's uh he's just a really interesting dude to listen to and had lots of uh lots of cool details, but he definitely seems like a nice guy that you would not want to not want to piss off. Oh, for sure. He's definitely a bright guy. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so the podcast we're referencing is called The Vinyl Guide. Henry's been on it before, too. I think we mentioned it maybe on a previous pod. That one I listened to. I also listened to the Mario Rubalcaba one. Yeah, I did, too. He's had a few good, cool guys from punk bands. I'm pretty sure I saw Greg Hetson was on one. I haven't listened yep. to it, though. 
Yeah, recently he was. I, I did not listen to that one yet either, but I will. Yeah, so the host, Nate Goyer, does ask him, you know, about the circumstances behind him leaving Black Flag, and he just, you know, he kind of says the same thing he always says, like, you know, we're living on top of each other. It's a miracle that any of us survived it. You know what I mean? That, that kind of stuff. And he says he never left with any bad blood. He does point out they never made another album after he left. And I, I thought this was interesting. He says they did two more tours without him. He thinks mostly to pay back over, I think he says, a hundred grand they had borrowed from the Gins. Yeah, he, wow. He talks a lot about the unicorn stuff and you know, yeah. how he participated in the, the legal fight there. And he makes a, a couple cool points about how it wasn't, I think he says something along the lines of that they were able to rebound from the unicorn stuff, but by the time they could release records, they'd evolved so much that it wasn't a natural progression from Damage to My War. And he says there should have been two albums in between those albums. It got me thinking that that would have been interesting. Yeah, well, that's the that's the Chuck Biscuits era, right? Yeah. And I mean, they had some of these songs from Loose Nut and other of these records back then too, and they just couldn't get them out. Yeah. One of the things, like they talked a little about a little bit about All, which I, you know, I know you're a huge All fan, and there was there's a really funny part where he he's the the host Nate asks about that self titled All album, like the greatest hits album. Oh like, yeah, if you want to call it that, and he's like, <laughs> Bill's like, I've got a bunch of them in my garage. Get them out of here. I, it was pretty funny, but well, his point was that they they go for money. online and they do because they're hard to get a hold of i see one every couple of years uh i've i picked one up i really like it and and i mean it's an interesting record because they basically retract i believe they retract all the instruments for all the songs and then just kept the original vocals oh really i thought they just remixed it Mm, ah gosh i could have sworn that they re maybe i'm wrong someone will correct me on it but there is a there's a like milo sings a song on it yeah and uh just uh just like them i think and but i mean it sounds really good yeah yeah sounds great he says the host says makes an off-the-cuff remark and i know what he was trying to get at but he says you know because uh, Bill's talking about how discouraging it was towards the end of All's career and kind of why they wrapped it up. It was just going, you know, I don't think even the Descendants had the clout they do now. You know what I mean? At the time when All packed it in. But he says, he the point he's trying to make is, if the Descendants are always been so popular, why not All? And he says, All is just Descendants with a different singer. And I've always disagreed with that notion. All, All is a very different band from the Descent. Well, maybe not a very different band, but they definitely have their own sound, I would say. Well, well, the, the distinction I would make is the Descendants have Milo in it. All is Bill Stevenson's band. That's the distinction I make. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, the guitar playing for me is, it's way different, I would say. It's more, uh, it's more like Greg Ginn style guitar playing almost. Yeah, no, Stefan's guitar playing is way more dissonant and it doesn't make sense, but it does when you hear it. Yeah. And 
like Milo is a great singer, but the singers in all are insane. All three of them. I agree. And especially for me, Scott Reynolds, I think is an insane singer. And don't get me wrong, the Dave Smalley records are really important to me, but Scott Reynolds is crazy singing, man. Wow. Yeah. Do you have any of those uh, Scott Reynolds albums that came out on Cruise? I think they're called Goodbye Harry. Goodbye Harry, yeah. They're great. I like them. They are good, yeah. Uh, He also had um, a band called The Pavers, which I quite like. Don't know them. And Yeah, The Pavers are good. A little heavier. And then Scott also has at least one, maybe two solo records. I think he's got a solo album, and then he's got like a Greatest Hits album. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at that all Greatest Hits. I think I, I'll have to correct myself. It only talks about mixing. It doesn't talk about re-recording. The remix, I guess, sounds so good that it sounds like they're all re-recorded. Well, how are those records mastered back in the day, too? Like a good mastering job can really bring out the balls in a song, you know? Yeah, they definitely did on this one. Yeah. But just like them with Milo on it is the highlight on this one. It's got, it's about like, I don't know. It's about a quarter, I guess a third of each singer Yeah. on that. Everyone should check it out. Maybe it'll be, and maybe it, it'll be for cheap now on the uh, Descendants page. Yeah, it's really great. Anyways, that's all I really have to say about, you know, kind of where Black Flag was at at the time. Let's jump into History Lesson Part 2 and start talking about this album. History Lesson Part 2. So this was the first Black Flag album that didn't have any spot on it. Yeah, and you can tell. Yeah, it uh, it was done by Dave Tarling, who went all the way back to Nervous Breakdown. He was a former in-house producer at Media Art. He worked with, like, like I said, he he does. I don't want to grow up, which is about to come out around this time. He worked with like Wasp. Yeah, I come to Spots Defense regularly, and I and I always will. But this record sounds leaps and bounds above the other ones sound wise. Like especially, you know the the eighty four records. Yeah, no, it sounds great. And and it's interest, it's interesting. I was I was actually listening to the Chuck Biscuits demos to listen to that version of Modern Man. I wanted to kind of just compare it with the one that's on this record. And obviously the fidelity on those bootleg demos are it's it's not as good. And I really like Kira as a bass player, but I really like the sound of Chuck Dukowski's bass playing these songs that are on this record. Yeah, I also listened to the Worm version that's on the Radio Tokyo tapes, and it doesn't sound anything like this. Yeah, it's not even recognizable, right? Yeah. It's funny that they could still call it the same song. Yeah. So that song, while we're talking about it, of course, was co-written with Ed Danke, who uh, was, and well, I guess around this time, is, I, I don't think Worm's an active band. I, we'll get to it when we come to the Feast album, but I'm sure that's already in the can and has been for quite some time. Like, Chuck's already moved on to Swa by this point. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, we spoke about the Feast record during the uh, the, the Worm single podcast, and I think that Feast record was recorded years before this one would have come out. But we'll get to that in a, a few episodes. Yeah, well, the Modern Man 
like the Radio Tokyo, Tokyo Tapes Volume 1 came out, I think, in 83. And that's, I'm assuming, you know, Feast was probably recorded at the same session as, as that modern man. But who knows? So here's an interesting fact. You know what Ed Danke went on to do next? I can't remember. <laughs> I did know. Well, he, I, he, he plays with Jeff Dahl in a band called Power Trip. <laughs> Jeff Dahl's just all over this podcast lately telling you yeah and he also wow. he's also going to play in a pretty shitty album by the mentors called sex drugs and rock and roll with the yeah. te- with so, the terrible yeah. the terrible nom de plume sneaky sperm shooter yeah, yeah. i'm just looking so ed danke also played in reign of terror power trip the and then the mentors yeah and also in the mentors was lou hinzo who was in worm yeah terrible the mentors yeah <laughs> what are they like oh they're like a heavy metal version of like a bad metal version of like the nag heist or something oh it's it's like off-color stuff oh it's ridiculous <laughs> you've never seen that have you ever seen that documentary curtain courtney a really bad tabloidy one no no well the mentors guy el duce is in that no I actually haven't, I've, I've never really watched a Nirvana documentary. Yeah, so lots of different people did writing on this one, which was interesting. Maybe that's why it's kind of a little bit more consistent. The writing's a little varied. Here's an interesting thing I found about the track Bastard in Love. We'll get to this in a bit, but the original version of this came with a printed lyric sheet on the, on the sleeve. And on on the sleeve itself, on the printed lyrics sheet, it says something about, there's like a little, what do you call those things? Like a little asterisk? Yeah. And it says, thanks, Medea, at the bottom of the sheet. And then if you follow follow that sign, it's beside Bastard and Love. Medea was uh, Greg Ginn's girlfriend around the time of Damaged. Medea Jones is, was her name. She apparently wrote the lyrics for the song Room 13. Greg apparently wrote Life of Pain kind of in response to that. And I mean, if you read the lyrics to that, they're pretty intense. Like, look what you've done to your arms. I just can't stand watching you self-destruct. And it sounds like she did eventually self-destruct. She also has a co-write on Thirsty and Miserable as well. I thought that was interesting. I don't know, do you have the album in front of you? Yeah, we can see... There are a bunch of extra people on this too. Des does backing vocals. So does Milo. Yeah. Someone named Louie. The first three songs on side one, Loose Nut, Bastard in Love, Annihilate This Week, are all solely credited to Greg. Uh, best one yet is a Rollins Kira composition, which was kind of cool. Modern Man, of course, is uh, Chuck Dukowski, Ed Dukain, Ed Danky, sorry. That one goes all the way back to... That's the only one on this album that that was on uh, the 82 demos. Side 2, This Is Good, is a Rollins Ginn. Whenever I see Rollins Ginn, I just assume like that that was maybe a Greg Ginn's soul... Like a instrumental track that Rollins kind of wrote lyrics to. I'm the One is another Rollins Kira song. Be interesting to know how those came about. Yeah, if they wrote them in practice or at practice or how how that happened, sinking is a uh, Rollins Ginn. I 
guarantee you that one was an instrumental song that Henry put lyrics to. Sure sounds like it. And really interesting, Bill Stevenson, Now She's Black. I mean, Bill's an amazing songwriter. Look up your favorite Descendants and all songs. There's a good chance Bill Stevenson wrote it. Yep. This one, too, we we mentioned uh, a couple of podcasts ago on the Slip It In record how there are a couple of songs that, or at least one anyways, where you could put Milo on it. You could put Milo on this one if you ask me. Now she's black. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's very melodic. Henry struggles with it a little bit to me. Yeah, he is. he has melody when he sings, but he's not a very melodic singer. Yeah. What else do we have here? Uh, Black Flag is managed still by Nixon Management. <laughs> oh, they've, cha- uh, they've changed their P.O. Box back to P.O. Box 1, Lawndale. The, uh, what else do we have? Total Support, Cliff Samuels. We're going to see that name, I think, a fair amount coming up. What does Total Support mean? Beats me. <laughs> Special thanks to Chuck. Yeah, for creative input. So... Front cover drawing by Raymond Pettibone. We should talk about that. So this apparently is the album that caused the the final fracture between uh, the brothers, the Ginn brothers, Raymond and Greg. I thought it was. In, I thought so it was the, in my head. No, it was this one. So this is apparently a self portrait on the cover of Raymond Ginn, aka Raymond Pettibone, and so it's him with kind of sitting on a bench or something with two two women. And it says, women are capable of making great artists. And the story is that Raymond was kind of already getting frustrated as kind of being pigeonholed as the black flag guy. And this image had apparently been used on flyers before. When Greg resurrected it for this cover, he didn't tell his brother. And the final straw was Bill, got put in charge of the lyric sheet that I mentioned earlier, and he kind of cut up pieces of the art, for example, like on the cover, like just Raymond's face here is cut out and put printed on the lyric you sheet. You have the lyric and sheet? That was, no, mine doesn't have it, but I, you can see it online. Oh, okay. I'm sure my, mine must be a repress. Yeah. Well, mine, You don't have it either? No, mine's a repress too. I do not have a lyric sheet. I mean, mine's probably a repress from... I don't know, mid '90s, late '90s, something like that. I man, I could have, yeah. I could have sworn it was in my head, but you're probably right. It was this one, and I mean, I know that story, I guess, inaccurately from that one YouTube video on Raymond Pettibone. Henry Rollins describes this particular circumstance where uh, Pettibone was pissed at how Greg used his artwork and got Bill to kind of cut it up. I didn't realize it was for Loose Nut. I must have forgotten that. Yeah, that's why uh, to this day, Greg and Raymond do not speak, apparently. There was obviously, you know, a lot leading up to it. And on the back, there's a little piece of Pettibone art, too, of a naked woman in a window, and and the caption just says, you are a peeping Tom. This naked woman is also cut out and is on the lyric sheet as well interesting so i wonder then i haven't i didn't actually check i was listening to this on cd whether i've got run out grooves on this repress there is on mine 
what do you think of this cover art? I've complained in the past about oh, yeah. color, color being added. But to Ray- I, I don't mind this. To Raymond Pettibone's artwork? Yeah. Uh well, I don't know. I I can't I can't picture my war or slip it in without like those vibrant red and blue covers for me. Yeah, no, those are great. Yeah. Lo- loose nut for me also looks this way. I mean, pink and orange, it kind of clashes. It's not the greatest color scheme, but I don't mind it. I love the blue black flag across the top. Yeah. The iconic logo with the bars looks great. I agree. Yeah, I do have runout grooves. I, want, I wonder, let me see if I can even read them here. I don't have the best looking... Uh, Best looking copy here. Side, you want me to get them? Uh, let's see here. I got it. I got it. Side one says kicking and sticking, right? Yep. And then side two says all for me, all for me. That's it. This is definitely, you know, people talk about, you know, Black Flag going metal. This is like their most metal album for me. I, I mean, I don't consider it a metal album. It's more like a hard rock album. But there's less, I would say, like Greg Ginn freakouts on the guitar. I totally agree. There's less experimentation from Greg. Yeah. Less kind of free improv on the guitar. A lot of straight ahead power cording. So I agree. Um, I wouldn't call it metal myself. No. But so I agree with you there. But it's less experimental for sure. Some of the lyrics, like. I'm, I don't love the lyrics in Loose Nut. It's kind of like slip it in for me. Modern Man has one of my favorite Black Flag bass licks. I, I've told yeah. I've told you that before. The breakdown in the in the middle and the bridge. Um, I just love that line. It's like simple. The living tomorrow for is every man's sorrow. That part. Yeah, love it. Yeah, love it. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's so simple, but it just sounds awesome. Yeah. And like I said, oh. on the on those uh, on those Chuck Biscuits demos, when Chuck Dukowski is playing those lines on his P bass, distorted, even better for me. All of Side One's really good. So the whole album's good. I agree. Sinking is probably the weakest track, but I I like it. Yeah, it fits. I mean, it's co- yeah. it's a cohesive record. That is probably my least favorite song, though. Anything else you want to say about this, or should we should we do the ballot result? No, I think we've sufficiently loosened the nut. Ballot result. What's your pick, Ryan? I actually don't have one picked out. Oh, you're going to pick one live? Yeah. <laughs> live in the studio? <laughs> I listened to this album like probably six or seven times this week and didn't pick out a favorite. There are a number of really solid songs on this record. There just are. I would actually pick Modern Man because that bass line sticks out for me, but I'm a bass player and... I'm biased. It might not be the best song on the record, as you have pointed out to me in the past. Just because I like it doesn't mean it should be on the ballot result. Uh, I could live with Modern Man. I like Loose Nut, even though the lyrics are not the best. I really like the song Annihilate this week. Got Kira on vocals, but we're going to have a live version of that on an EP way later. I've always liked the that riff that goes down a step during the chorus. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? I do. I always thought that was really cool. But I can live with Modern Man. Give Chuck Dukowski some love. Always. Ryan, what's next week? So next week, we've got first release by a new band for us. October Faction. 
which I've read about. We have mentioned a fair amount. Have I ever listened to one of their records start to finish? This is going to be the first time for me. It just might be the best one yet, but we'll see. Something tells me not, but <laughs> I know people really like that record, so maybe we'll learn to love it too. I've I've read a lot about about people who don't like it, so I, I don't know. We'll see. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. 